A new survey from one of the nation's largest healthcare systems, Dignity Health, reveals more than 75% of Americans believe individual mindfulness can benefit their community. 96% know someone in their lives who would benefit from being more mindful or present. And taking just two minutes a day to be more present in your daily life not only benefits you, but also those around you. Set aside two minutes every day to be mindful and reflect on relationships and the purpose behind your work and daily activities. Share how you are making this a daily habit on social media with the hashtag Take Two Minutes. That's take the number two, M-I-N-S. Visit DignityHealth.org slash take, T-W-O-M-I-N-S. Take two minutes for more mindfulness tips. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 104. judge people today by the color of their eyes. Would you like to try this? Yeah. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Since I'm the teacher and I have blue eyes, I think maybe the blue-eyed people should be on top the first day. I mean, the blue-eyed people are the better people in this room. Oh, yes, they are. It's 1970, and Jane Elliott is performing an experiment for the third time. The first time was in 1968, the day after Martin Luther King was murdered. The brown-eyed people do not get to use the drinking fountain. You'll have to use the paper cups. You brown-eyed people are not to play with the blue-eyed people on the playground. Because you are not what you're listening to is a frontline documentary, and you can go watch it now. It's really, it's really amazing. It's called A Class Divided. It's free. It's online. You can watch the whole thing. And what they did is they took these students and they had them years later watch themselves do these things. And it's stunning to watch because people are, they want to laugh at first, and you want to laugh at first, and then you start to feel that like cold hollow um, tears welling up oh my god this is really working very quickly feeling of how Elliot was able to create this strange segregated world just by explaining to these children that brown eyed kids um, have melanin and melanin makes you stupid who goes first to lunch the blue eyed people no brown-eyed people go back for seconds. Blue-eyed people may go back for seconds. Brown-eyed people do not. Brown eyes. Don't you know? They're not smart. Is that the only reason? Might take too much. Over the course of the day, the blue-eyed kids bullied the brown-eyed kids. They called them names. They punched them. 
They blamed every awkward moment and mistake on the fact that their eyes were brown, and they took credit for every success on account of the fact that their own eyes were blue. And they even performed better on tests than did the same kids in the same class, different only in eye color. But the next day, all that changed. I told you that brown-eyed people aren't as good as blue-eyed people. That wasn't true. I lied to you yesterday. The truth is that brown-eyed people are better than blue-eyed people. (laughs) Russell, where are your glasses? I forgot them. You forgot them, and what color are your eyes? Boo. <laughs> this experiment, of course, received national attention when she originally did it in 1968. That's why they made this documentary in 1970 and why Frontline returned in 1986 to bring those kids back as adults and look at themselves and think about it and talk about it. And they had a chance to interview the teacher, Jane Elliott. And the reason it became very popular was because these children wrote essays uh, and they were reprinted in the newspaper. And the essays were all about what discrimination felt like. In the 1986 Frontline piece, Jane Elliott explains why she did this. And I'll have a link to the entire thing at the website, but listen to her in her own words. On the day after Martin Luther King was killed, my, one of my students came into the room and said, they shot a king last night, Mrs. Elliott. Why'd they shoot that king? I knew the night before that it was time to deal with this in a concrete way, not just talk about it, because we had talked about racism since the first day of school. But the shooting of Martin Luther King, who had been one of our heroes of the month in February, could not just be talked about and explained away. There was no way to explain this to little third graders in Riceville, Iowa. As I listened to the white male commentators on TV the night before, I was hearing things like, Who's going to hold your people together as they interviewed black leaders? Uh, What are they going to do? Uh, Who's going to control your people as though this was, these people were subhuman and someone was going to have to step in there and control them. They said things like when we lost our leader, his widow helped to hold us together. Who's going to hold them together? And the attitude was so arrogant and so condescending and so ungodly that I thought if white male adults react this way. What are my third graders going to do? How are they going to react to this thing? After it was all over, she explained exactly what was happening, why it was happening, and she had the kids tear off the collar she'd given them. She'd given them brown or blue collars to wear so that they could see whether or not they had brown or blue eyes from a distance. And she had those kids tear them off. And then the kids rushed back together. Let's all sit down here together. Blue eyes and brown eyes. Does it make any difference what color you are? No. No. Down, girl. Make any difference in the kind of person you are? Does that feel like being home again, girls?
name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And on this episode, we're discussing labels with the author Adam Alter, who wrote a book about labels called Drunk Tank Pink. And like in this example in the beginning of the show, his book is full of anecdotes and stories and studies and interesting information about how labeling people affects their minds, changes their brains, changes their behavior, and changes society itself. More on all that after this commercial break. Like so many of you, I am constantly trying to learn as much as I can, challenge what I think I know, explore new interests, and The Great Courses Plus is just, it's the best. It was created for people like us who have this insane obsession with eating up as much info as we can get into our brains. I get so much enjoyment out of watching their fascinating video lectures, learning from award-winning experts. They have eight thousand lectures and with the great courses plus you get unlimited access to those lectures formal logic behavioral economics neuroscience even how to play chess or take better photographs and now you can stream the great courses plus from any smartphone tablet laptop or tv or download the videos and watch them offline yeah on an airplane watch a course in neuroscience I recommend this course that I have really enjoyed called Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior. Truly, I have actually listened to this three times. It explores the hidden motivations behind the basic decisions that we make every day and how those choices shape who we are. You'll learn things like, why do we care what other people think about us? Why is prejudice so common? Why do people fall in love? Why do we dream? What are the psychological mechanisms behind forgetting and self-control and hurt feelings and stress. These are such cool lectures, and there are 24 of them in this course. Right now, as one of my listeners, you can watch this or any of the Great Courses Plus lectures free for one month when you sign up through my special URL. To get started today, and I promise you're going to love this, you just sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. I am really happy that this is one of our advertisers because I really enjoy this service, and I think you will too. To get a free month of it, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. If you are hiring right now and you don't know where to post your job to find the best candidates, if you want to find the, the best talent and you know that finding great talent can be tough, you have a solution. Thankfully, someone invented something to solve this problem. It's called Zip Recruiter, and you can post your job to 100 or more job sites with one click. Their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. And that's why Zip Recruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, Zip Recruiter does not depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, More than 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in less than 24 hours. No juggling emails, no calls to your office, just screen 
rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified candidates with immediate results. And right now, listeners to this podcast can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for nothing, for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash not so smart. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash not so smart. How about one more time? <laughs> Get it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McRaney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Our guest in this episode is Adam Alter, an associate professor at New York University's Stern School of Business, where he holds an appointment in the psychology department. He wrote a book a while back called Drunk Tank Pink, and this episode is me interviewing him. This comes from a couple years back. This episode is a repeat. He's written a book since then called Irresistible, but this book that we're talking about in this episode is Drunk Tank Pink and the Other Unexpected Forces that Shape How We Think, Feel, and Behave. All right, let's pick his brain. Uh, Adam, you know I have to get this out of the way. I know you've probably answered this uh, 1,055 times. <laughs> what does drunk tank pink mean? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a strange title, and the people often struggle to remember what those three words are. I've had a lot of variations that are inaccurate, but once you know what it means, I think it's slightly easier to remember. It's, uh, it's a bright bubblegummy shade of pink, and it's the color that psychologists decided to paint the inside of certain jail cells in the late 70s and early 80s. They basically discovered that this very bright bubblegummy pink was very effective at calming people down. And so if you took a very aggressive prisoner in a jail, put them inside this cell for 15 minutes or so, they calmed down a lot. They were much more compliant and malleable and better behaved. And uh, it ended up being used in all sorts of different settings. So uh, it, some, some schools painted this, their classrooms with the same bright pink color. Uh, my favorite application, though, was a, a football coach at Iowa who decided to paint the visiting locker room the same color. So <laughs> whenever whenever his opponents would go in for half time, uh, they would basically go in there. And he he claimed that they were always much weaker after the half because they'd been sitting in this room. You know, they, the coach was trying to motivate them, but they they came out much sleepier because they were surrounded by this bright bubblegummy pink color. And I think you're right. They had to change the rules after that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. The rules now state that if you're going to paint one cell, one cell, if you're going to paint one of the locker rooms, this bright pink color, you have to paint the other one the same color. You have to standardize a home and visiting locker rooms, which I think is a good <laughs> idea. I should say the reason I chose this for the title is because the book is basically about how things in the world around us, including color, uh, but not limited to color, shape how we think, feel and behave. And a lot of these effects, I think, are quite surprising, either because they exist at all, but others are surprising because of just how strong they are. So for me, this particular effect was striking, just because the idea that you could paint a room a particular color and change dramatically how people inside it behave was pretty surprising. Yeah, and, do you, and why do you think that this, um, this uh, pink color effect works? Well, I think, first of all, I should say I'm, I'm skeptical about a lot of things and I'm skeptical about ha just how powerful and robust this effect is. So there's, there's quite a lot of evidence that it does calm people down. Uh, there is some evidence that it's a little bit shaky at times. And one of the pieces of evidence, for example, suggests that there's a backlash effect after about 15 minutes if you leave people in the room 
sometimes they become even more aggressive. So you've got to be very careful with the timing. Um, and that suggests part of what might be going on, that, that people are initially shocked by the color. Uh, it's, a, it's an incredibly bright, assaulting color when you see it, in, in, especially when a whole room is painted with it. Um, there, there are a couple of possible explanations for why this is happening. One, I think, is, is based purely on association. The idea is that a lot of the people who are calmed by this color tend to be aggressive, and they're often men. And this color in our society is associated strongly with femininity. And so one of the ideas is that this color primes them or reminds them of the, the differences between their current state and what they associate with femininity. Um, so that's just a purely associative account. It sort of primes them to think a little bit more um, in a more relaxed way. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's why. Yeah, sorry. Could carry on if you had a question. Oh no, no. I was just I was just going to mention that you know color is such a is so charged with meaning in in every culture. You know, it varies from culture to culture. And it, when you when I read about when I read about the the pink walls, I thought about how how it's just a really large moment in most people's lives choosing what color to paint their their baby's room, right? Right. And it's why and it's a big decision because of this associative architecture of our minds, this, you know, the, some, this semantic net around every little thing, just not just words, but colors from in your research, what, what have you found when it comes to like painting babies rooms or maybe offices or, uh, workplaces? What is the, what is psychology recommending that we do with these colors? Well, there's a fantastic irony, which is that I get emails all the time asking me that question. What color should I paint my daughter or son's room? And I'm colorblind. So there's, there's the <laughs> irony that I, I've written all about this color pink um, and various other colors, and I can't actually see them myself. So I try to, I try to give very light-handed suggestions. And I, I, I think it's, it's really dangerous to paint a room this color. I think partly it's dangerous because of the backlash effect, but also there's something really sinister about this sort of behavioral engineering when it comes to mm. your kids, especially long-term. As you say, this is a big decision. It's not like they're going to be in a pink room for 10 minutes while they calm down after a tantrum. This is the room that they'll spend hours in. Um, so, you know, I, I say, I, I generally suggest that going for something more neutral is probably a better idea. I think neutral colors make a lot of sense just because they don't, they don't impose on our thinking and feeling and behaving quite as strongly as very strong, powerful colors do. And so I, I'm usually an advocate for those so that they function more as background colors rather than actually changing much of how we think, feel, and behave. Mm -hmm. Now, that's certainly true of something like a bedroom. I don't know that that's true necessarily of a workspace. So there is a lot of evidence that certain colors change how you think. They either make you a little bit sharper and more vigilant. They make you a little bit more careful in your thinking. And other colors seem to make people a little bit more expansive, to think a little bit more abstractly, more broadly, more creatively. Um, so red t seems to make people a little more focused, blue a little bit more broad broad thinking and um, lateral thinking. And so there, if you want to have small dabs of those colors in areas that are strategic, that help you think in those particular ways, depending on what you do at work. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But painting a baby's room bright pink, I think, is a pretty extreme move. And you you write about how it's not just colors, but um, even our very uh, names uh, and the names of other people greatly affect the way we think and feel and behave. Um, you mentioned nominative determinism. Could you kind of briefly go into what that is? Yeah, it's this great term. It was coined by a reader of the New Scientist magazine in 1994, there was a, a short story in the magazine, and the story was about two doctors who practiced urology, 
They were urological surgeons, and their their names were Doctors Splat and Doctor Whedon. <laughs> and so the the writer of this column said, "That's really strange. You know, their names seem to map perfectly onto exactly what they do with their lives, onto their occupations." And one of the readers wrote in and said, "You know, based on the Latin, we should call this nominative determinism. Nominative meaning name, and determinism meaning determining the outcome." And so this term basically means that your name shapes, shapes to some extent your outcomes, your destiny. And I think in its extreme form, you get cases like Usain Bolt, who has the name Bolt and is also the fastest person in the world. Now, obviously, as scientists, we question whether Usain Bolt would have been a slower runner with a different name. It's not really clear that that's true. But there are a surprising number of these. They're, they're called aptronyms. Mm, I love you that can word. Actually, yeah, it's a, it's a terrific word. And if you go on Wikipedia, there's a long, an incredibly long, surprisingly long list of these where you find people like, um, you know, Australia's champion surfer for many years was Lane Beachley. Uh, one of the great footballers was named Derek Kickett. You know, they're, they're just these, these terrific examples, and there are so many more of them. Yeah. And like you, I'm a little I'm a skeptical of it in a way because, you know, it, it, it sort of um, it uh, makes you think about confirmation bias and that we're just looking for things that match our expectations. But you do write about how uh, even if broadly speaking, non-determinism has a small effect, there are lots of ways in which that really does affect people's lives. Like, could you uh, explain about how um, if you're a lawyer, this could really change uh, the path of your career, the way uh, your name is spelled and pronounced? Yeah, sure. So the examples I just talked about were cases where there's there's some meaning in the name that then maps onto the outcome. So kick it for a football player. Obviously, there's there's some some meaning overlap there. But I think where this becomes a much more powerful effect, and this is what I study a lot myself with some of my colleagues, in particular Danny Oppenheimer at uh, UCLA now, uh, is is to look at how easy it is to pronounce the name. And that's the effect that you're referring to there. So we basically, I did some research with actually some, some researchers in Australia as well, looking at how quickly people progress up the legal hierarchy, how quickly they become partners in law firms. And what we found was that if you control for things like ethnicity and gender, what you find is that people with simpler names, with names that are easier to pronounce, become partners in law firms more quickly, quite a lot more quickly, actually. Mm. That, that's, in, that's insane. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. And the reason I think it's particularly crazy is because you could imagine, you know, the first day you meet a lawyer, the only thing you know about them really is, it's, say it's a young lawyer and you're a partner and you're trying to pick people for a new team that you're putting together and you meet the lawyer. You don't know much. You know, maybe, maybe you've seen the person's CV, you talk to them a little bit. The name might be a reasonably important cue. If you can pronounce the name, you know, there's less social anxiety and that's a good thing. But the idea that 15 years down the track, there are differences based on that name, that's striking because mm -hmm. it suggests that it's, first of all, it's very worrying because it suggests that these effects persist for a very long time. But it's also just striking how powerful these cues are and how much they shape really important world outcomes. Yeah, and that's, um, I want to spend the rest of our time kind of digging into that. And because uh, a lot of the book is about association and expectation and how it's, you know, it's involuntary and it's automatic and it's really invisible. And I really like the way you introduce this. Uh, there's a section on labeling and you talk about how the Russian language has a common word for light blue and the English language really, really doesn't, not a common word. And it drastically affects the way people with brains that were shaped by those two different languages see the world differently. Could you kind of go into a little detail about those color experiments? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal experiment by Lyra Boroditsky and her colleagues. She's at Stanford. And Basically, what they do is they look at how 
having a name for a particular object or concept is very important in shaping how we perceive it and how quickly we perceive it and recognize it. So in, in English, as you said, we have one, one word that's blue, and that's a single label for a whole lot of different kinds of blues. I mean, you go all the way from sky blue to a very rich navy blue to a, an almost midnight blue. And for us in English speakers, there's just one word for that. In Russia, there were two separate words. And there is a point on the spectrum where light blue becomes dark blue, where the one word becomes the other word. And so they have two separate labels for a concept that we in English only have one label for. Mm-hmm. And, so, and just to, to help people listening to this, if you can imagine, as we were talking about pink, like uh, you can imagine a culture would just call that light red. But then in our culture, we, could, we, call, we have a specific word for pink versus red. And Russian has a specific word for light blue versus dark blue. I'm sorry, just go ahead. No, no, that's a, that's a very helpful analogy. That's exactly right. And it puts it, it shows what it would be like in the reverse. And so they, they have these two different labels. And what that means is that when we in English are trying to decide whether a color is light blue or dark blue, it takes us a little bit longer because we don't have a ready label for it. We can't just pick a label out of our heads. Whereas imagine seeing red or pink, you instantly know that that's either red or pink, if you can see color. So um, what they found basically is that when you're asking people to distinguish between two very similar shades of blue, if one of them happens to lie on the light blue side with the one label and the other happens to lie on the dark blue side with the other linguistic label, Russians are very quick to make that judgment. They can tell you very quickly it's one or the other and they can tell you which one's lighter or darker and they can also match it to a third square of blue that's either one of the colors or the other. So they basically, what that shows is this label gives them the ability to distinguish between these colors very quickly. Their mental universe has a concept for each of them and a separate concept for each of them, which makes it very easy to do that. We in English really struggle with that task because for us, these are just two blues that look extremely similar. One is a sort of middle blue and the other is a slightly darker middle blue, but they're both middle blue and we don't really have a ready name for them. And so we are not good at those tasks. And it, basically what this, this study shows is that everything, even the most basic things like perceiving color, we're not even talking about looking at other people or animals or you know higher order concepts, but even something as basic as a color, the way we perceive that, how quickly we can distinguish it from others is determined by the labels that we use. Yeah, and that is, <laughs> I mean, I remember, you know, well, I guess we could just briefly mention, you know, there's this Warfian hypothesis, which is, you know, that language affects thought and, uh, and, percep- and perception. And um, it's obviously true. I mean, you, you talk about bridges, uh, you know, to a Spanish speaker versus a German speaker are either feminine or masculine. And, mm-hmm. and so therefore you think of them and describe them in terms of masculinity or femininity, what a femininity, whatever that means in your particular culture. Yes. And um, for these uh, Russian speakers and English speakers, the, the reality that they, uh, you know, deal with on a day-to-day basis is we have to assume that subjectively it is different based simply on the way their brains were nurtured by the language that they learned over the course of their lives. Yeah, it's actually the Warfian hypothesis is is fascinating and very contentious. A lot of linguists don't don't endorse it, and there are lots of different versions of it. So there are some very strong versions which suggest that our mental universes are completely different. We live a completely different life because we use one language rather than another. And that's uh, mostly out of favor now with linguists. I think they don't think that the strong version is quite true. There are weaker versions, though, and I certainly endorse the weaker versions to the extent that they suggest that what we see, how quickly we see it, the way we perceive specific things can be tweaked slightly by the language that we use. And so that's, I think that study that you mentioned with the, 
the Russian blues, the light blues and the dark blues is a terrific example of that. Mm-hmm. And in uh, the the uh, blue, different colors of um, different shades of blue study, you you write about how if you mess with the uh, the subject's language processing abilities, it also affects the way that they are able to see the different colors of blue, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So a lot of what's going on is, is this relationship between what you're seeing and how it in- instantly inspires some sort of linguistic cue or language uh, or, or name or label. And so if you mess with the ability to do that, if you make it hard for people to do that, then you don't see these effects anymore. So it really is about this mapping between the color and the language. And you write that labels don't merely, is a, these are your, your words, labels, labels don't merely function as placeholders. They craft the images that populate our thoughts. And that leads to one of my favorite topics in all of psychology, which is the, uh, the halo effect, which is um, your book was great in helping me sort of bridge um, that semantic net arc, uh, associative architecture stuff over to the uh, halo effect and how the two are, are shaking hands. Could you sort of... Um, help people listening understand what we're talking about through the, uh, the HANA study? Yeah, sure. Um, so the HANA study is this absolute, absolute classic study. It was actually run by John Darley uh, and one of his students in the, the early 80s. John Darley was one of my advisors, and he is one of the great social psychologists of the 20th century and the 21st as well. And basically the study was designed to get a sense of how important very basic labels are in shaping what we see. So if you see the same thing, you see a person behaving the same way, will the labels that you have to describe them change how you perceive that behavior? So what they did was they had a girl named Hannah, and there were two different versions of what people were watching. They're watching a girl in the one version who's quite middle class, maybe middle to upper class. You learn that her parents are university educated. They're both professionals uh, they make a reasonable income. Uh, she's going to a pretty good school. And you can see her skipping along at this school. You're basically watching a video of a, a fairly wealthy child from a wealthy family. Mm-hmm. In the other example, in the other case, the other people saw a slightly different video. This Hannah was watching, w- was skipping along, but she was outside of a much poorer school. The school was a bit run down. Her parents were blue-collar workers who had never gone to college. They had a much lower income. And then what happens is having seen either one version of Hannah or the other version, they all watch the same video of Hannah try to complete some mental puzzles. Some of the mental puzzles are really difficult and some of them are really easy. And Hannah's, they're trying to get a sense of how smart Hannah is. And it's tricky to do because she, she's, you know, the way they crafted it, she is deliberately answering the questions that they deliberately crafted it. So she's answering difficult questions correctly, but the easy questions incorrectly. So that's really ambiguous. It's hard to work out. Is she a smart student? Is she struggling? And what happens is the halo that that is formed by what you see first, whether you see her skipping outside a really nice school or a not so nice school ends up shaping your interpretation of how, how intelligent she is. The people who've seen her skipping outside the nice school and they, they think that her parents are well-educated and earning quite a good income, assume that she's a smart student, even though she's answered a lot of the easy questions incorrectly. The other students, the, the other participants who are watching her in a, a much poorer neighborhood, they know that she's from a working class background, assume that she's not very intelligent. They focus much more on the questions she gets wrong than the questions she gets right. Mm-hmm. And so this, this initial halo that's formed by the information that people get early on at first ends up doing a lot of, of work in shaping what people interpret subsequently from ambiguous feedback. So it's, it's a very powerful effect, and it suggests that these labels we have, like educated, uh, high income versus working class, poor, less educated, 
end up shaping how we see even the same things. We think that we're seeing objective evidence, but what we're really seeing is evidence that can be crafted and shaped and interpreted differently by by these lenses that we bring to bear on on those pieces of evidence. Mm-hmm. And in those studies, what always uh, bothers me or, or gives me pause is the idea that I imagine that most people, if you never debrief them, they would live the rest of their lives believing that they had been objective. And Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. And I think that's what we're doing every day at all points during the day. Every time you meet someone, you, if you know anything about them, that's either serving as a halo or I, I guess whatever the opposite would be. It's, it's, uh, it's basically downgrading everything you see and everything you learn about them subsequently. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's also why first impressions of, of people are so critical because they either form halos or they mean that everything else you see subsequently will be interpreted through a negative lens, a critical lens. Mm-hmm. And um, you write that this effect, it can be generated through suggestion and expectation by accepting someone else's label for a thing before you've had a chance to evaluate it on your own. Not just this ambiguity thing, but if someone specifically says, uh, well, like you write about, the academic bloomers. Um, mm-hmm. go, could, you mention, could you briefly explain what the academic bloomers study was? Yeah, it's a great study from the 1960s run at a school in uh, San Francisco. And students were basically arbitrarily split, randomly split into two groups. One group got this label bloomers. They were called academic bloomers, and they were people who were supposed to do well in the, in the coming year. And the other group was not given this label. And there was no real reason why they were split into one group or the other. It was totally randomly done. And then the, they were split into two separate classes for the coming academic year. And the teachers who were teaching the class of bloomers were told, you should know that you have some very st- special students under your care. They are expected to do extremely well at the end of this year. And uh, they've been identified as academic bloomers, as hot academic prospects. And the other teachers in the other classes were not told anything. Now, keep in mind that the average IQ, the average ability was no different between these bloomers and non-bloomers. They were chosen randomly. There was no systematic difference between them at the beginning of the year. By the end of the year, the people who had been described as academic bloomers had IQ scores of 10 to 15 points higher Mm. on various tests. So this this is where the term self-fulfilling prophecy comes from, the idea that you can create an outcome just by describing it ahead of time, as uh, even if it's not true, as being in that way. And that's basically what happens in this, this, this classic study. And the idea is that these teachers, you could imagine them doing lots of things during the year. Um, and we can go back to the Hanna study where this ambiguous evidence is interpreted according to whatever pre-existing beliefs people had. Mm-hmm. You could imagine a teacher who sees a student who is described as an academic bloomer. If the student does one thing really well, let's say the student writes a really good essay but then does very poorly on a math test, the teacher says to him or herself, you know, I think the writing ability is the true measure of this person's capacity and that's, that's where the bloomer the bloomer is shining through, basically. But the fact that this person can't do math, it could have been a bad day. Maybe they're just not a mathematician. Maybe that's just the way things are. Mm. And so they keep forgetting the evidence that goes against the term bloomer, and they keep remembering and building on the evidence that suggests that this person is blooming. They give them more attention. They shower them with praise. And in the end, this group of students actually does better because they get slightly more attention. They get slightly more praise. Their confidence is raised. And and that's not happening for the other group that doesn't have this label, the bloomer. It's so, I mean, it sounds so much like similar effects, like, like the way cold reading works and, you know, and, you know, uh, confirmation bias and other things where you, in moments of ambiguity, you, you look for 
some sort of filter to help you make sense of the world. And if someone hands you a filter, even if you're not aware that it's been done, it can mm-hmm. so totally paint the reality that you, that you create. And, and that's, that's it. That's, you know, interesting trivia for just discussing different psychological studies, but these specific studies we've just mentioned obviously correlate to real things that happen in the world that affect people's lives, their whole lives. Absolutely. Uh, in every possible sphere, we're talking about uh, sporting ability. We're talking about academic ability. We're talking about likability. When you meet someone, you know, if you've heard something about them before, that will provide you with a lens to perceive everything else that you you learn about them, and, and so on. I mean, it's it's huge in the workplace. It's a big factor in education. It, it's uh, it, basically it shapes almost every imaginable outcome that involves social interaction. So it's a very powerful effect. And. Uh, that's why it's really great that books like yours um, and are are bringing this to the public's attention, and the um, and hopefully will uh, help us create a better world, or at least uh, help us understand the world that we that we make. And I wanted to give you one last question, or pose one last question to you here about all that. One of my favorite parts of the book explains. Uh, you just talk about how the color spectrum, you know, visible light, mm-hmm. is just it really when you get down to it, it's just one continuous gradient, and we placed human meaning over that gradient by labeling portions of it. And you you write that similarly, we human skin tone is a continuous gradient, and we've reduced that spectrum into these really broad categories that have, as you say, no basis in biology. Um, and when we label people uh, by skin tone. Um, how does that affect our psychology and what can we do about sort of undoing how that's affected our cultures going into, uh, you know, the years that we have uh, going forward? Yeah, it's a huge and very important question. Uh, I think it has influence in, in a lot of different arenas, uh, mainly in the legal arena. A lot, of, a lot of it comes down to that. So there's a lot of evidence, for example, that when, you, when you're talking about eyewitness testimony or when people are trying to recreate an event they saw, if they believe the person they saw was black or white, they will remember them very differently. They'll remember their behaviors very differently. They will sketch them differently. Um, they may even meet out different punishments for the very same acts. So these labels, even if the person, let's say the person has one black parent and one white parent, um, if you then describe that person as a white person or a black person, it's the same individual, but very, it has very different consequences for them, especially in the legal domain, but not just in the legal domain. So it's, it's incredibly damaging uh, when, when we use these labels. Uh, there, is, there is no extremely easy solution. Um, if there were, I think people would, would try to be, put it in, into place, and they, it, it's just really a very difficult problem to solve. I think one thing to do is um, when I was young, when I was at school, we were basically told that there were certain labels that we shouldn't use. Now, this sounds a little bit like new speak, and it's a, you know, there's some concern with limiting the, the words people can use, but I think it's really important when kids are young to educate them about the power of these labels. Mm-hmm. So one thing we were taught was you never use the word fat. That's damaging, it's upsetting, it hurts the person who is overweight, and it's just a word that we never used. It was just something we were taught not to use. And I think it shaped how we saw the world. So we, it, you just stop seeing the world in terms of fat versus not fat or people in terms of fat versus not fat. And it, it was, I think it was a really smart idea that we were taught very early on the power of these labels. So I think a lot of this comes down to education. I think it's very hard to change how adults uh, who have been using these words for a long time I think it's hard to change how they use them. It's hard to get them to use them less and to see them as different from how they see them now. I think with children and uh, educating people when they're still young, I think there you can certainly uh, bring about some change and, and improve the situation. So I, I, I think there should be more room 
at schools for, for education about this stuff. And indeed, there is some already. I've worked with a couple of, uh, of elementary schools, and I've seen that some of the, the forward-looking schools are doing some terrific work on that. And, and the kids, as a result, are much savvier about the words they use and how powerful those words are. Well, I love this topic, and I love your advice. I hope that uh, we can institute these sort of changes and, and just know ourselves in a way that allows us to create better institutions and better relationships and stuff. And I could obviously talk about this forever, but we have to stop. I want to, uh, <laughs> I want to, uh, I want, I know people are going to want to try to find you and read more about what you do and what you've uh, researched and what you're doing. So uh, how can they find you on the internet? Um, they can find me at adamalterauthor.com. That's one place they can find me. Uh, I've got also an NYU homepage. They can find all my contact details there. The book is on Amazon. It's, it's in, a number of different bookstores, so they should be able to find it there as well. But I welcome any and all emails. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's a really interesting book, and uh, I know the people that, lo- that like this podcast will love this book, so please check it out. And thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, David. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. For more great podcasts like this one, go to boingboingpodcasts.com. For previous episodes of this show, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Boing Boing, or youarenotsosmart.com. Show notes are at youarenotsosmart.com. If you would like to support this show, please go to Patreon, patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. Chip in. One day we're going to have a reporter and it's going to be great. And you are going to be the people who made that happen. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. I am at David McCraney. And you can find nuggets of fun things over on Facebook at Facebook.com slash You Are Not So Smart. New stuff on the way. I promise I'm on the road doing speeches at the moment. So I am Uh, juggling (laughs) all sorts of things. So that's why this was a repeat. But we have new stuff on the way soon, I promise. 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 A new survey from one of the nation's largest healthcare systems, Dignity Health, reveals more than 75% of Americans believe individual mindfulness can benefit their community. 96% know someone in their lives who would benefit from being more mindful or present. And taking just two minutes a day to be more present in your daily life not only benefits you, but also those around you. Set aside two minutes every day to be mindful and reflect on relationships and the purpose behind your work and daily activities. Share how you are making this a daily habit on social media with the hashtag TakeTwoMinutes. That's take, the number two, M-I-N-S. Visit DignityHealth.org slash take, T-W-O-M-I-N-S. Take two minutes for more mindfulness tips.